Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 15. We are journeying through this book of Romans, and we have finally come to the end of the book. You might say, wait a second, there's a chapter 16. That's true. Chapter 16 is uh, definitely after chapter 15. However, um, the gist of everything Paul wants to say, everything that Paul has been getting at, comes up to its high point here. You ever watch a movie or read a book uh, uh, that the climax is not actually at the very end, but it's just a chapter or two, it's just a section before that. That's what we have here. And then uh, in, in what Paul has uh, been talking about for so long, he's been using some vague terms up to this point. All the way back in chapter 1, uh, Paul began to give us an introduction of what he uh, wanted to say to this church at Rome, a church that he had never visited before. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And I mentioned at the time a year ago when we started this journey through the book of Romans that this was an odd statement. Not that Paul would thank God for a church, but why would Paul thank God for a church that he had never been at? He had never visited the church at Rome. I mean, they have no memories to share. He had never been there before. I mean, usually when I thank God for someone, it's because they've inspired me. Or we have some type of uh, uh, common memory that we share, and I'm thinking back upon that, and I thank God for that person. Isn't it strange for Paul to give thanksgivings to God for a church that he had never been with? But he tells us a little bit more in, in verse 8 of chapter 1. He continues, and the words will be on the screen behind me. He writes, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I find this to be strange too. That Paul would be thanking God, not just because the, the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, but he says, your faith, the church at Rome's faith. I mean, if it was me, I would think that he would have said the church at Jerusalem's faith. Because that's where it all began, in Jerusalem. Why is Paul focusing on the church at Rome and talking about their faith being talked about throughout the whole world? In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, Paul continues. He says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request. Again, this seems odd. It's strange. Why would Paul pray unceasingly? For a church he had never met. He knew some of the people there for sure. <clears throat> but he had never met them. Together collectively as a church. I mean there's thousands of churches that I've never been to. That I've never visited. But I don't pray for them at all. Much less unceasingly. I mean. Let's be honest. Is Paul just sort of exaggerating here? Trying to make him feel good. Say, you know how we do. Oh, I'm praying for you. And then that's the last you know, we ever talk about the person. We never actually pray for the person, right? And that's not a good habit. Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he saying, I'm, I pray for you all the time, but it's really just an exaggeration? Or is Paul truly praying for them 
constantly? And if so, there's got to be a reason. There has to be a plan. But he's not telling them what it is just yet. He continues in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. We know that Paul wants to visit the church at Rome, but, but God has restricted him to this point. God has not allowed Paul to go to Rome just yet. God has some other things that Paul needs to do first. I want you to look at this uh, map on the screen behind me. And on this, on this uh, screen, you see over on the right side, there's some squiggly lines. Those squiggly lines represent about 12 or 1,300 mile journey that Paul took on his very first missionary journey. And that, that whole map is the map of the entire Mediterranean area. And so Paul, had, he had taken some missionary, some missionary journeys, and all along the way, everywhere that Paul went, he told people about Jesus, and he started churches with those that believed in Jesus. And so that, that screen, the map on the screen, the blue lines there, represent where Paul started from. He started in, in Antioch, and that's at the far right, the far uh, eastern part of that screen. He started there. And Antioch is in the modern-day uh, country of Turkey, re real close to the Syrian border. And he went from there, and he went into Turkey proper and uh, started churches in all these different areas and made his way finally back to Antioch. And there's a little blue star to the south of Antioch. Perhaps you can see that. That's where Jerusalem is. I want you to keep that in mind because the next map shows his second missionary journey. And this squiggly line is green. I can't see if you can... I can't tell if you can see that, but again, he starts in Antioch. He goes up through Turkey. He goes a little bit farther, in fact, quite a bit farther. He finally makes his way down to Jerusalem and back up to Antioch where he began. And so uh, there's his second missionary journey. He's doing the same thing, essentially, telling people about Jesus, starting churches in all of these areas. Then he took a third missionary journey. And he's still on this third missionary journey when he writes the book of Romans. On this third missionary journey... That's this purple line. He starts again in Antioch. He goes even further. He goes all the way to Greece. He's in the far southern part of Greece, um, and he's at this city called Corinth. And he's there in Corinth writing this letter. His plan is to, once he finishes this letter that we call the Book of Romans, he's going to send that on to Rome by courier, but he's got to make, he, he has to make his way back to Jerusalem first. And then, then, He'll make his way on to Rome. That's his plan. But why Rome? We still don't know why Rome. I mean, there's a lot of other land there, a lot of other cities. Why go to Rome? Is it simply because Rome's the capital city? Is that it? Paul tells us in verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that is, that you may be, that you may be established. What does that mean? that I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. Can he, can he tell us what the spiritual gift is? I mean, what, what does he mean, some spiritual gift? I would say that Paul's being intentionally evasive at this point, not telling the Romans what his true plan is for them. Verse 12 of that same chapter in chapter 1, Paul writes, that is that I, when we get together, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Well, okay, that settles it. Paul is definitely being evasive here. What in the world does he mean? What does he mean we're going, I'm going to receive encouragement from you? Is encouragement 
Is that code? Is that preacher talk for money? You know, oh, you've been such an encouragement to me. Thank you for all the money you give me. You know, is that what he's really talking about? I mean, is Paul like some of these uh, TV preachers today who really have a problem with greed, who can never seem to have enough money, and yet the, they're always encouraging this, you to send them more money because that would really encourage them. You know, do you think maybe Paul wanted to go to the big city of Rome because it is a big city and he would be able to take up big offerings there and he'd get quite wealthy there? Is that it? That's not it at all. Because when you look at what Paul has done throughout his life, he's done just the opposite than try to line his own pockets. I mean, he's gone out of his way not to line his own pockets. He suffered quite a bit telling people about Jesus and starting churches. He endured a lot of hardships. It seems that his ministry really was focused on taking the good news of Jesus to people who had never yet heard it. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. Whatever the reason is for Paul wanting to go to Rome, it's a big deal to Paul. Paul's wanted to do this for years. It has been in Paul's the back of Paul's mind, maybe the forefront of Paul's mind, I've got to get to Rome. If I'm going to obey God with my calling, I've got to get to Rome. He just hasn't had the opportunity yet. Verse 13 of chapter 1, he continues. He says, so that, I want to get there, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He wants the church at Rome to give him fruit. Whatever fruit is. Probably not bananas. He's probably talking in code again. He wants the church of Rome to give him some type of fruit. And he says that other Gentiles, other non-Jews, have also given him fruit. What's this fruit that he's talking about? He doesn't say. Not yet. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, I'm under obligation. Both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Again, the mission of Paul's life is to take the good news of Jesus to people who had never heard and to start churches there so that wherever that place is, they can grow in their faith and they can continue to share Jesus with others even after Paul is gone. He says, this is my obligation. This is my debt that I owe Gentiles, non-Jews. But again, what does that have to do with preaching the gospel in Rome? I mean, he's writing to Christians who are already in Rome. Rome already has a viable gospel witness. Sure, Paul could preach the gospel in Rome, but so can the Christians who are already there. Why does Paul need to go there? He doesn't say, but he must have a reason. And so if you were reading the book of Romans for the very first time and you're reading the first chapter, that's all you get so far. A lot of clues, but not a lot of answers. Why is Rome so important to Paul's mission in life? And it might even, if we listen carefully, we might discover part of our own mission in life, too. And here's another question. Why is the book of Romans so long? 
I mean, it's taken me a year plus to preach through it, and I'm not done. Sound, sort of feels like it's taken a year to preach this whole message today. I mean, why did Paul have to write such a long letter to a people that he had never been with? Historians have today, from Greco-Roman times, from antiquity, about 14,000 personal letters that were written from one person to another. It's amazing. About 14,000. Most of those letters were between 18 words and 209 words. The length of the average letter from ancient Greco-Roman times was 87 words. Paul's letter to the church at Rome, 7,111 Greek words. Paul, really? It's got to be that long? I mean, that's an awful lot to say to a church that you had never visited before. Now, if you think about it, if all 7,000 plus of those words were not based on any shared experiences they had in the past, then it stands to reason that everything Paul has had to say in the book of Romans is meant to give them a common foundation for their shared experiences in the future. For after Paul gets there. You see, according to Paul, he and the church of Rome needed to be on the same page with regard to the gospel. The very next thing that Paul says is that I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul and the church at Rome needed to have the same common understanding about the gospel because that is central. But not only the gospel, they needed to have the same understanding about the wrath of God against unbelief. That's the rest of chapter 1. The same understanding about the impartiality of God. In chapter 2, towards both Jews and Greeks, the same understanding about the universal guilt of all mankind. That's chapter 3. They need to have the same understanding about what God has to say about justification by faith apart from works of the law. That's chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5. They needed to have the same understanding about what God had to say about being united together in Jesus Christ. That's chapter 6. About our struggle against sin. That's chapter 7. About living according to the Spirit. That's chapter 8. They need to have the same understanding, Paul and the church of Rome, about what God had planned to do with His own people, Israel, how He was going to bring them back to Himself in faith. That's chapters 9 through 11. They need to have the same understanding about living as an offering to God. That's chapter 12. About submitting to the government. About, and that's chapter 13. They need to have the same understanding about how to love one another so much that you put your own rights aside. That's chapter 14. And after Paul had said all of that, he finally, now, today, reveals what his plan is for the church at Rome. 
And they've been waiting on pins and needles for this moment. If you do have your Bible in Romans chapter 15, stand with me please in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read verses 22 through 33. That's the end of the chapter. Paul says, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, I and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would grant us a glimpse of the heart of Paul the Apostle because he was commissioned by you to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let that be our commissioning too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes there's a particular thing that you know you need to do, but you might even be excited about doing it. But the timing's not right. The timing. So much of life is about timing. You know, and it's been my experience that serving God in ministry is not so much about what to do. I mean, the what that you do is usually pretty easy. I mean, you do what the Bible says. That's what you do. You do the right thing. That's what you do. Pretty easy to do what it is. And if you're not sure what to do, you ask someone who might have walked in your shoes before and they can help you. Determine what to do. So the what is usually easy. The most difficult part sometimes about serving God is the timing. We all know the importance of timing. I mean, if you've got some bad news that you need to share with your spouse, what do you do sometimes? Sometimes you wait. You wait until your spouse is in a good place in their spirit, right? And then you dump it on them, right? And that's what you do. And you destroy their day afterwards. But you don't want to take someone who's already low and make them lower. You know, if it's bad news, it's bad news. You can't avoid it. But the timing, the timing is important. And in ministry, 
there's a time to move in a certain direction. And Paul's time to go to Rome had not yet materialized, but it was getting closer, and Paul knew it. He says in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 15, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now, with no further place for me in these regions. I want you to look at another map. I know you're tired of maps today. Look at another map real quick. It's got all three, and actually a fourth, of Paul's missionary journeys overlapped with one another. All those squiggly lines in Turkey and Greece, you see all that? That's everywhere Paul had gone. He said, there's no place else for me to go here to the east of Rome, to the east of Italy. The implication is, i got to go west. I've got to go west. See, Paul had taken the gospel from modern-day Israel to Syria to Turkey to Greece and beyond. And he, he had been everywhere east of Rome, anywhere around the Mediterranean. Now he wanted to go to Rome itself. But Rome wasn't Paul's final destination. Rome might even be his new home base. He needed to go west where the gospel had yet to be preached. In verses 23 and 24, Paul says, And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. I want you to look at a different type of map of the same region. Paul is in, I don't know if you can make it out, but he's in uh, where it says letter A in Greece. He's in Corinth. He's writing this letter. He's going to send this letter by courier to Rome in the middle of Italy. And then he's going to make his way on to Jerusalem and go back to Rome himself. By that time, the letter will have been read at the church and it will have made sense to them. And he's eventually going to go on to Spain. At least that's his plan at this point. And Paul hopes, Paul expects the Christians in Rome to help finance his mission endeavor to Spain. And so once he makes it to Rome, he'll stay with them. He'll enjoy their fellowship. He'll preach the gospel. But before any of that happens, Paul needs to finish his current task. He needs to take up an offering for the Christians in need back in Jerusalem. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. What's this deal with the poor in Jerusalem? What's going on here? Well, Acts chapter 11 tells us, and this happened about eight years before, it tells us that there was a, a great famine that was about to occur. And it was going to hurt all of the world, but especially there in Jerusalem. It hit Jerusalem and the surrounding area very hard. And the church at Antioch, where it was Paul, Paul's home base at that time, where Paul himself was at that time, they took up an offering. And they sent that offering to the church at Jerusalem for the relief of the poor Christians there who were suffering by way of this famine. And there were two people who were in charge of taking the money from Antioch south to Jerusalem. One of them was Barnabas. The other was Paul. They were the stewards of the money. By the way, that's why when we take up an offering 
every week, we have two unrelated ushers, offering ushers, take it to a secure area. And when the money is counted, we have two unrelated people count the offering. It's called accountability. It is a biblical concept. And I would add this. The offering ushers are not just accountable to, to each other. The offering counters are not just accountable to each other. The finance committee is not just accountable to the finance committee. All of the parties involved, all of us, myself included, are accountable to you, the church. If you ever have any questions about the church's money, about the church's policies, feel free to ask. We are an open book. The only thing just about that we will not tell you is who gave what. That stays private. There's always that person who thinks, you know, Pastor, I don't, I don't give much to the church, but I sure would like to know who does. You know, No, sorry. We're not doing that. I do want you to know that even though there is a growing trend of churches that hide financial information from members and make their pastors and other church leaders practically unaccountable, we are not like that here. We don't just say, hey, trust us, we're godly. That's not right. That's not fair. No, we believe that trust is born out of open communication and accountability. Okay? So we get this practice from Barnabas and Paul, as well as other places in the New Testament. So back to Barnabas and Paul. They go from Antioch, they take the relief offering to the church at Jerusalem, to the elders and the pastors there at the church at Jerusalem. And this is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, by that he means the ability and the calling to preach the gospel to people who have not yet heard it, to Gentiles. Recognizing that James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of Christian fellowship. So that we might go to the Gentiles and that they, James and Peter and John, would go to the Jews. And then Paul adds this in verse 10. They only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I also was eager to do. Now, eight years after that happened, Paul is on this third missionary journey. He's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. He's starting churches in these areas. And he's taking up an offering everywhere he goes for the destitute believers in Jerusalem. He's fulfilling his promise. He's delivering on the promise that he made to James and to Peter and to John. Pillars of the church. Giants in the church. He had to keep his promise. And as much as Paul says, I want to go from here in Corinth over to there in Rome. I want to do that. I'm so close. I've got to keep my promise. I have to deliver this offering to the church at Jerusalem. 
for the poor. Before I can go on to Spain, I've got to finish the task that God has given me. Verse 27, Paul writes, and I'll add a, a few things. He says, yes, yes, the Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia, they were pleased to do so. They are indebted to them. These Gentile Christians are indebted to the Jewish Christians that are there in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they, the Gentiles, are indebted to minister to them, Jewish believers, in material things. This is such a wonderful principle that we need to be reminded of. You know, all throughout your life, God will send people to you to bless you. Whether you realize it or not, God sends people to you all the time to bless you. You know, someone shared the gospel with you. Someone shared God's word with you. Someone has prayed for you. Someone has cared for you. Someone has encouraged you. And when we are blessed spiritually by someone else, it is entirely appropriate and good for us to understand that we are indebted to them. Blessings have come our way through them. And it is entirely appropriate and good for us to bless them in return when the opportunity arises. Down the road, if the person who blesses us or who has blessed us in the past, if that person has a need, wouldn't it be wonderful to complete the circle of fellowship by blessing them with whatever they need, whether it's material, whether it's spiritual? This is the idea of true koinonia, the Greek word koinonia, fellowship, the sharing in common of needs and blessings. Sometimes we are blessed spiritually, and sometimes we bless others materially. The type of blessing depends on the need. What an incredible principle Paul teaches us here. He said the, the Apostle Paul needs to deliver these material blessings from, uh, from these two areas to the church in Jerusalem. He talks about that in verses 28 and 29. He says, Therefore, when I finish this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Paul is saying that when I have successfully delivered this offering to the church at Jerusalem, this will be proof that Jesus has blessed my ministry in modern-day Turkey, in modern-day Greece, proof that Jesus has blessed everything that I've been a part of, and then that will be my release. Then that will be my endorsement from God to go ahead and go to Rome and establish a new base of ministry there so I can eventually make my way to Spain where people had not yet heard about Jesus. There are people in Spain who need to know about Jesus. And I've got to go. I've got to go, Paul says. Then he asked the church at Rome to pray. To pray for him to be successful. Verse 30. 
He says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. One quick aside. Notice that in verse 30, all three members of the Godhead are mentioned. Jesus, the Spirit, and God. We won't park there for long because that's not Paul's point. But this is one of those verses where all three members of the Godhead, or you might say the Trinity, are mentioned. Here's what Paul really wants prayer for. Verse 31, he says, Pray that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient from Judea. You see, some of the same Jewish religious leaders that opposed Jesus also opposed the early church. And the same ones that opposed that early church, they also opposed Paul. And they hated Paul. They absolutely hated Paul because Paul was one of them. And then Paul met Jesus and Paul switched teams. He switched sides. What a traitor Paul is, they thought. And if they ever get their hands on Paul, they're going to arrest him, they're going to beat him, they're going to kill him if they could. Paul says, pray that I'll be rescued from these people. Paul's concerned, not for his own health, Paul's concerned that if he's arrested in Jerusalem, he might never make it to Rome. And if he never makes it to Rome, he'll never make it to Spain. And if he never makes it to Spain, the people of Spain will die and go to a devil's hell without ever having the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Paul says, please pray. Pray that I don't get arrested. Verse 31 and 32 continue. He says, And that pray that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Paul knew of the potential dangers of going to Jerusalem. And Paul was about to find out just how real those dangers would be. We know, looking back, Having seen the end of the story, we know that Paul was, in fact, arrested. But here's the incredible thing. Even though he was arrested and he was put on trial, as a Roman citizen, Paul could appeal. And he made his appeal to Caesar. Caesar lived in Rome. Paul wouldn't make it to Rome. But when Paul made it to Rome, he was under arrest. It certainly wasn't the circumstances that he expected. But you know what? God is never caught off guard. You know, when things don't turn out the way you wish, when things don't turn out the way you had planned, please remember this. God does not get caught off guard. It's not a surprise to God. He is with you. He knows your sufferings. He knows your difficulties before they ever happen. And God has already made provision before it ever happens. So remain faithful in your struggles. Paul prays in verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul trusts God and he entrusts the church of Rome with this message.
And he, by extension, Paul is entrusting us who now have this same message. He entrusts us into the very hands of God. He wishes God's blessings, God's shalom, God's peace, God's wholeness, God's well-being to be on those who might read and understand this letter. May the God of peace be with you all. But above everything else, Paul desperately wants to get to Spain. He wants the same God and the same peace to be extended to them. Paul is an example of someone who was rare in that day and who's rare today. Someone who would take his entire life and say, God, I give you me. Anything you want to do with my life, God, I'll do it. Anything. I find that there's very few people willing to say that to God today. Truth be known, most of us say, God, do what you want in my life, but check with me first. Because I may have to veto your plans. I may have to resist your spirit. I may not be willing to give up what you want me to give up. I may not be willing to give up everything in order to obey you. What are you willing to give up for God? If in your mind, if you were to think of that question, what am I willing to give up for God? And if in your mind you're going through a list of things you might be willing to give up for God, I'd say you don't get it. There's only one answer to that question. Everything. I'm willing to give up everything. I'm willing to give up never seeing my kids again. I'm willing to give up not having a paycheck anymore. I'm willing to give up my 401k. I'm willing to give up my comfort. I'm willing to give up my home. I'm willing to go anywhere that God would have me go and do anything that God would have me do. I'm willing to give up everything for God. Absolutely everything for God. That's a high calling. That's a hard deal to follow through on. But that's who Paul was. That's what we need more of today. Are you willing to do anything and everything, give up everything for God.